And we are now ready to start. Starting with tonight, for a while, we will talk, I will hold a few discourses about the so-called yoga of the disciple from the Tibetan yoga. There are some teachings which refer very much to the right attitude, to the aspiration, to the spiritual aspiration that have influenced me a lot in the young age of my yoga practice and which I always thought to be an amazing pointer in the direction of a correct spiritual practice. I very much sympathize Tibetan yoga and the Tibetan spirituality and um, that is why although I'm teaching mostly the Indian styles of yoga with Kundalini and Laya and Hatha and the Tantric forms of yoga. I've always been inclined towards the Tibetan styles of yoga and that's why in the school here we have a workshop on Tibetan yoga. We have the art of dying which is inspired largely from the Bardo Todol, from the Tibetan Book of the Dead and other traditions other teachings. I'm teaching the Kala Chakra with the tradition of the Dhyani Buddhas. We are teaching the Pova technology, the Tumo technology, many fundamental things from the Tibetan Yoga. I personally felt very connected with Tibetan Yoga and with the Tibetan Yogis, partly precisely because of their extraordinary aspiration. These people were not only in the possession of an extraordinary technology, but they were also cultivating a very appropriate, a very luminous spiritual attitude. In Tibetan yoga you can see a little bit the Asian influence. The Tibetan spirituality has in it some elements which are blending the Indian spirituality because most of the Tibetan yoga has been imported from India, but they mix it with this samurai spirit of the East. They mix it, they blend it with this more Manipura radical approach and this makes that in Tibetan yoga you find an adorable mixture of devotion coming from India, but at the same time the Chinese, Mongolian, Japanese type of precision and this Manipura type of accuracy, this combination of Manipura and Ajna, a very sharp discrimination about the causes and their effects and therefore this proverb which says if you want to drown yourself don't torture yourself with shallow water applies very well to the Tibetan mentality like in Tibet yoga was never done as a sort of entertainment today you see people doing yoga for fitness yoga for entertainment yoga out of curiosity 
yoga for just dabbling into the alternative or the occult, this thing did not exist in Tibet where the conditions were so rough and the practice was so committed that either you were all for it or if not there was no place for dabbling into it. There was no place for half steps into it. This corresponded very much with my feelings when I started yoga. It also corresponded with my discriminative understanding of what yoga is and of how one obtains results in yoga. That is why all during those years, all during these years, ever since I started my yoga practices in this lifetime, I have been very attached to the Tibetan yoga and um, I always wanted to share with my pupils some of their principles. Of course, don't forget that many of these texts are made by, are created by hardcore spiritual people. Many of these texts are composed in the medieval times, in the medieval Tibetan culture. That's why they may be a little bit rough compared to the politically correct, sweet, watered-down, sugar-coated type of civilization that we have today and with the way in which people do not commit themselves or have a hesitation in committing themselves. For a difference, you are going to see an attitude and meditate on it. Many people are in awe in front of the Tibetan spirituality. But to create a Tibetan spirituality in 800 years, this is how it has been created. It has been created precisely through a style, through a commitment, through a deepening of the yoga and spirituality, which comes from this spirit. It is this spirit of Tibetan yogis that I wish to share with you. I'm sure it will give you a lot of aspiration. Remember the times have changed. Many circumstances have changed. That's why the requirements for the human being have changed. We read the lives of great saints like Milarepa or the famous Lama Merit Intellect that practiced years and years of practice just to cut a new path, just to open a new spiritual path and to be able to empower their disciples to practice that path. Today we are deep in the end of the Kali Yuga into a spiritual time which is very, very different from what Tibetans had in the 12th century or in the 15th century for the case. And that automatically says that, and it is a fact of spiritual life, that people today get many results in spirituality in another way. There is a different karma and dharma. There is a different leniency that Shambhala has towards the spiritual beings. And that is why I want you to extract the empowering part of those 
not to get discouraged by the fact that you cannot possibly be like Milarepa. There are great yogis of the tradition like Milarepa or spiritualists like Rumi or saints like Ramakrishna that are like the pole star, the north star. They are guiding lights for the spirituality of this planet. And then there is the large mass of the spiritual seekers which take those great luminaries as an inspiration. Even if we cannot equal them, it doesn't mean we have to get discouraged and jump into the opposite extreme where we make no spiritual efforts because we can't be like Milarepa. In Kali Yuga, even if you are one-tenth of Milarepa, and you will still make it to spiritual realization, that is what I have seen practicing spirituality in the West in the 20th century. And that's not because you are different from Milarepa, it's because the circumstances in the world are so different from those in which Milarepa grew up and lived, that there is a different response of the universe, there is a different response of the collective subconscious mind, and because of that, we are getting a totally different deal in our spiritual quest nowadays. What I am trying to say is simply, there is hope. There are people that reach spiritual realization in the 20th century, in the 21st century. Spiritual realization is not dead or lost. The rules of the game are changing all the time, not absurdly or radically, but they are evolving. However, it is always good to get back to the basics and to understand our ancestors. You are here seeking for spiritual knowledge and you are here seeking for yoga. Then it is good to share a little bit of the spirit of the yogis that predated us in history to see how yoga came to be what it is. The yoga of the disciple is a gathering of some 28 chapters of teachings for the disciples. Like even before you learn the headstand and even before you learn the pranayama, first learn what it is to be a spiritual seeker. It is a sort of Buddhist equivalent of yama and niyama, like first the background, even before asana and pranayama, what do you have at an early stage? But it is not called yama and niyama, and it is not the general behavior for people in the world. It addresses the specific issues of people that want to follow a spiritual path. Therefore, it is for disciples, not for people who consider themselves not directly spiritual practitioners. The Tibetans have borrowed from the Chinese Buddhists and Taoists. It's a tendency which even Buddha partly had when they classify things under categories. Like the study of Buddhism starts with the four noble truths. There are not five truths. There are not twelve truths. There are not three truths. There are four noble truths. 
there exists this tendency very much in the Chinese environment and the Tibetans got that part that everything is a set of something. The, in Chinese Taoism, you can read about the eight signs which show that a woman is nearing orgasm. Even in terms of sexuality, there are eight signs of this. There are ten steps of that, which for some people it is very narrow-minded and very mechanical, and for some people it's very reassuring because it's very scientific, rational, orderly, and some people thrive through that. Some people say, no, no, there can be many other ways of saying the same thing. Why limit it like there are ten causes of regret? Maybe I can find eleven causes of regret. There are many causes of regret. Yeah, that's true. But still the Tibetan gurus speak about the ten causes of regret. If that covers the whole spectrum or not, it's hard to say. The Tibetans had a great mind. Their civilization was focused on Ajna Chakra often. The Tibetan Yoga and Tibetan Buddhism has a very strong Ajna Chakra. You would expect from people with such big Ajna Chakra in such a third eye environment that their mind is quite encyclopedic and that their mind embraces and encompasses things, has a bird's eye, has a global view over things. That's why indeed probably the Tibetan gurus didn't miss much when they made their, their classification, while for some people this way of going in classifying things is a bit too Germanic, a bit too engineering-like, for some people, it is, again, very precise. In which category do I fall? Which is the category when I, where I want to pay attention? And that kind of approach. So, in the yoga of the disciple, the precepts for how to be a spiritual student, how to study spirituality, how to practice spirituality, there are some 28 chapters and each chapter is called something, is given a title, like the first, which we definitely are going to cover totally or partly tonight, we'll see how quick it goes, is called simply the Ten Causes of Regret, which simply says people can fritter away their lives foolishly in about ten different ways. When you will be on your deathbed, looking back at your life, you might have ten causes of regret. There are ten main causes which, make you be, which can make you be sorry for the way you lived your life. And it's much better to know them when you are 25 than when you are 85, because when you are 85 there might be some things which you'll keep on regretting, and while when you are 25 you can do something about those things. Thus, I'm going to go with you through most of these chapters. There are three or four of them which are lagging behind in a rather metaphysical, philosophical way. I will evaluate when their time is coming, if I want to go into those, because I want to approach things with you practically. The very first chapter, 
called the Ten Causes of Regret. And it starts with a sentence which says, the yoga disciple seeking liberation and the omnipresence of the state of samadhi should first meditate upon these ten things which are causes of regret. Later, if you don't do something about them, that is, they are not automatically causes of regret, except if you infringe on them. The first cause of regret. Having obtained a difficult-to-obtain, free and well-endowed human body, it would be a cause of regret to fritter this life away. That is one of the most general landmarks in spirituality. Basically, the Tibetan gurus say it is possible to fritter your life away, to waste it. And this is aggravated by the fact that you have obtained a, one, difficult to obtain, two, free, and three, well-endowed human body. The human body is difficult to obtain. You all take your humanity for granted. A Greek philosopher, as I say in the lecture on Ishvara Pranidhana, a Greek philosopher saw two hooligans fighting on the shore of a river and he lifted his hands in exasperation to heaven and he said, bloody imbeciles, if they would know how much you have to stand in line up there to get a body down here. That means his perception was that the spirits long to be born as humans on planet Earth, not because the planet Earth is the best thing place to be, but because it is a place where you can do something. It is a place where Gautama Buddha has reached Nirvana. And if Gautama Buddha has reached Nirvana, so can you. The path is open. The door is open. And thus, this great Greek sage, whose name I right now forgot, it might have been Socrates, but I don't remember precisely if it was him, he considered it such a waste of life that somehow you got a body which is hard to get, it's rare, you have to stand in line. Don't forget that the Tibetan astrologers claim that a full cycle of reincarnation takes 420 years. So unless you have a peculiar karma, you are born once every 400 years. And that simply says when you die, you spend more than 300 years in the astral world. And in the astral world, it's like a dream, a 300-year-long dream, and kind of you get stranded. There is no evolution. There is no practice. You have only the subconscious mind running mechanically like a broken gramophone plate, whatever it was impregnated with in your previous life. And of course, at some point, it gets boring. Like, sure, 
I'm in the astral world, but I haven't moved 10 centimeters up the spiritual ladder in the last 300 years. I am where I was when I passed away in my last life. And now I'm thinking, let's go down there. Maybe I can give myself a good shove up, a good push up again. That is why the spirits, for a reason or another, very often that reason is their own karma, their own desire, that they want falafels, they want sex, they want to move their limbs, whatever they want, and then they get incarnated due to this animalistic desires, they have to fulfill physicality, because it's boring to be in a coma for 300 years and nothing much happens. But at the same time, remember that these desires are produced by the samskaras, they are produced by the karma, and human beings might be waiting for 100 years to be born, and when they are born, they get drunk with some cheap booze, they destroy their brain cells, they destroy their liver, they burp and vomit all over themselves, they live a subhuman life, and then they die in ignorance and pain. It's like the human body could have done better than that. It's like Swami Shivananda says, eating, sleeping, procreating, a little laughter and a lot of tears, is that the best you can do? Is that what life is all about? And he says, don't die like a worm. Like a worm. He uses a very bad word. He says, don't die like a worm on the surface of this planet. Wake up and realize you could be like Milarepa. You could be like Rumi. They had a body with 46 chromosomes just like you. All it takes is, of course, the heart, the inspiration, the aspiration, and guiding your life in that direction. Ramakrishna echoing Tibetan yoga, although I'm sure Ramakrishna never read Tibetan texts of spirituality. Ramakrishna, who was so humble, says he or she, who is born as a human being and doesn't spend some time dealing with their own spirituality, wastes a perfectly good human life. The Tibetans are considering it a cause of regret. Having obtained a difficult to obtain free and well endowed human body, it would be a cause of regret to fritter this life away. Tibetan gurus say, been there, done that. And that's why we simply warn you, when you will die, if you are going to have used your life, maybe not 100%, but at least a bit for spirituality, if you don't put a little bit in your own spirituality, when your eyes will open, when you will be in the bardo, you will feel sorrow. You will feel regret. This is how it is seen from the state of the witness. This is how it is felt from Atman, from the Buddha nature, from the pure consciousness. When you can have that clarity, and you will have it when you'll pass away and look at your life in retrospect, then you are going to feel, oh, I'm really sorry to have done that. 
It is a big bummer to live your life in a way in which you are going to have so many motives to regret. This is a fundamental statement. That means people live their lives doing a thousand and one things. It's like the Dalai Lama, the present Dalai Lama said, life is like crossing a bridge and yet there are foolish people that want to build a house on the bridge. Like, what are we trying to build in this world? You don't need to be a Tibetan Buddhist for this. Look at life. All of you know that every human being, you included, a number of years before being in the here and now, you were nowhere. You obviously do not come from here. You are born at a certain point. And everyone knows that nobody stayed forever. Even if we have legends, unproven legends, about Babaji's and I don't know what sort of yogis that allegedly lived a thousand years, two thousand years, again, scientifically it can't be demonstrated. Nevertheless, every spiritualist, from Buddha to Jesus and from Milarepa to Rumi, they eventually left their body. They eventually passed away. Either they took their body with them in a rainbow of light or not, still they are not here physically. You don't see them walking around. They don't breathe our oxygen. They don't eat our food. They don't drink our water. Therefore, everybody knows how is it possible if in my existence... There was a long, long period of time before I became this, where I was not here and I don't know anything about that. And there will be a long period of time after I will stop being this. And even the great ones go there and they don't stay here. Everybody realizes this period of time, life, life on earth is transient, is ephemeral. So why do we try to keep on building pyramids and Eiffel Towers and houses on this bridge when we know that this life on earth is at the best crossing a bridge? It has no finality in itself. The final goal of whatever 7 billion people do on this planet is not on this planet because nobody stays. Therefore, where is the finality? Where are we going? Where is the long time spent? This is frittering your life away. People live in a soap opera. Life is full of desires, ambition, glamour, fata morgana. Everybody is hypnotized by maya. And it's just enough. You go somewhere... You just go to work in the United States or you go to do something somewhere and suddenly you are hypnotized. Everybody around you thinks in a certain way. Everybody is trying to do something. Then you realize, yes, I actually don't have a name, don't have a fame, haven't built an Eiffel Tower in my life, don't have money, don't have this, don't have that. Like those things become a finality in themselves. Although we know that it's a fake finality, 
because the finality is not in this world. It cannot be in this world. We come from somewhere and maybe we go in the same place or maybe we go somewhere else. Let's not speculate metaphysically, but definitely this life is just the tip of the iceberg. It's a loop through this world. Either there is reincarnation or not, and then you come again and again and again, but it's still a loop. And therefore, this concept is very important. Invest in your soul. Invest in those things which are eternal. You get hypnotized and people... It's easy if you have reached to be 50 years old and you don't have children that somebody makes you or the crowd makes you believe that maybe you should have had some children because that's a good thing, that's a good investment. If you live to be 60 and you don't have your own house or you don't have a career and a name and a fame or you didn't plant a tree or you didn't write a book or you didn't make a difference, it's very easy to feel like, what have I done in this world? The question is, what does anybody do in this world? Who will remember anything of this in a million years from now? Who will care about what any of the people living in the 21st century did a million years from now? Or 10 million years from now? It, we realize logically that it is so, but it is very easy to get blinded by the desires of other people, by this Fata Morgana of the world. And that is why it's very easy to waste our life putting efforts, putting ambition, putting desire in things which are not realistically important. I am not of the Vedantic type to say that nothing is important. I say the world is a real existence, it is Shakti, Prakriti, the manifestation, and the world has an importance in the big picture. Of course, when I say the world, I don't mean only the physical world, I mean the world with all the planes and the subplanes of the universe. But that still doesn't mean that you have to waste it away. For example, there have been great karma yogis. Buddha spent a long time in the physical world. Mahatma Gandhi spent the time in the physical world. And they did something. And you can be sure that Mahatma Gandhi, when he passed away, being assassinated, actually, he did not have a regret. Mahatma Gandhi was not on the ten causes of regret. That, oh my God, I just militated for peace. What is non-violence and independence of India compared to the infinite consciousness? And now I have one of the ten causes of regret. I was born and I frittered, I wasted my life away. No. What I'm saying does not therefore exclude action in the physical world, involvement in the physical world, but on a bridge. You have to do what is appropriate on a bridge. You don't build a house on the bridge. That is a foolish idea. Thus, the first statement is very general and it simply says, what do you want to do with your life when you will be on your deathbed 
and when you look back at your life, what will you want to see that will make you feel, I didn't waste this life? It says to start with, having obtained a difficult to obtain, free and well endowed human body. There are three epithets. The human body is first of all difficult to obtain. Again, we take it for granted. Don't take it for granted. It's exactly like love and other precious things. You cannot take them for granted. Humanity has the gift of consciousness, which is a gift of freedom. This is an enormous gift. You are given by the Creator a spirit, an immortal spirit, which makes it possible that in this life, this very day, you can reach nirvana, you can reach moksha, you can reach spiritual emancipation. Therefore, this is a huge gift. Remember, animals cannot. Exception made of the fact that Ramana Maharishi claimed to have induced a cow into samadhi as a sort of a supernatural miracle, just to prove a point in the context of Hinduism, Nevertheless, for the rest, all the spiritualities of the world never describe animals going in nirvana. The animals simply don't reach that. Their karma does not allow it, while the human being has that. Thus, the human body is difficult to obtain, put value onto it. I speak with people they desecrated constantly. They desecrated with dirty thoughts, with bad behavior. They desecrated with self-hate. They smoke. They destroy themselves. They are suicidal in their approach to life. They don't love themselves. It is something which is difficult to obtain. And this difficult to obtain has to be fulfilling two more conditions. It has to be free. Today we see it less. And there is an illusion, actually, of it. Your body has to be free. Which means in the old days, for example, people were slaves of other people. If you are born in a human body, but you are the slave of a very tough master, and your master doesn't allow you to do spiritual practice, then you can simply say, I did obtain a body, a human body, difficult to obtain, but alas, my karma was so terrible, I must have imprisoned and deprived of freedom many people in my previous lives, because alas, in this life, I was not free. If you are not free, then that's not good enough. It has to be a human body which is difficult to obtain. It has to be free. And it has to be well endowed. That simply says, if you are born with hydrocephalia and your skull is full of liquid instead of brain, then you are not well endowed. If your mother had thyroid gland problems and you are born with a Down syndrome and you are oligophrenic and mentally retarded, you are not having a well endowed body. If you, when you are a child, 
you have been castrated, neutered, just to be turned into a slave, then you don't have a well-endowed body. That means it's not enough to have a human body. That's a very important part to it. But you also have to have a free body. And it has to be well-endowed, which means it has to be complete enough, healthy enough, so that it can make enlightenment possible in this body. These are very important conditions, which again you take for granted. But m most people do take for granted. But in the moment when you take them as a gift, like every morning I wake up and thank the universe, thank God, thank the Shiva consciousness that I am born as a human being, that I am well endowed and that I am free, then I have got the gates to nirvana open. It's true, I may still be lazy, negligent, forgetful, and I won't make it to nirvana, but at least the first condition is there. I have got the ticket which allows me to get on the train to nirvana. Remember in this world, there are many people who don't get that ticket, not to mention all the souls which are stranded in the subtle worlds, and not to mention all the souls that are born in animal condition and which are not yet at that point. This is a very global view, a Buddhist global view. Where are we in the big picture? Where are we in this evolution? We are in a very privileged point. All of you, as far as I know, are people who are not suffering from disabilities and you are no one's slave. Of course, there are subtle forms of slavery today, such as Big Brother is trying to enslave us through money. Almost everybody in this room is one way or another slave to money. Very few people are financially independent from now till the end of their lives so that they can do yoga to their heart's contempt without any fear or without any worry. Ah, it's true. You can do what Milarepa did. Still, it's possible in some parts of this world. Go and lose yourself in the mountains, in a cave, in a forest, and then the problem, the issue of money will not be there. But exactly as we are prisoners of the money system, there are others. There is a population evidence with a tendency to go microchipping everybody. Everybody should have a personal number, a social security number, and all that kind of stuff just because you need to be controlled one way or another. So even this issue of freedom, some people feel like I want to break my chain and truly be free. I don't know how, what would it take for me to be free. But unfortunately I see it constantly that many people in this conspiracy theory environment are not spiritual people and they want a selfish Manipura Chakra type of freedom, a sort of anarchistic, demonic, luciferic type of freedom in which if they would get whatever freedom they are asking for, 
they wouldn't use it to become like Buddha. They would use it for living in vice and darkness. And thus they would fritter their lives anyway. It's not because they haven't got the freedom. They, have got, they might have the personal power to get their freedom. But the question is, what do you do then with the freedom when you have it? The first condition is to have a human body. That human body should not be handicapped in any major way. Uh, that you have in your childhood, you had your tonsils taken away, or you had appendicitis surgery. Of course, when you have, when you have your appendix taken away, that's a part of the body which was put by nature and the Creator, so the appendix is not useless or a mistake of nature. Taking it away can't really help the human being. But still, if you get your appendix removed, it doesn't mean you can't reach nirvana. So there is a limit, a common sense limit. A human body, that human body should not have any major handicap, and you should be in a position as free as possible. Although this Kali Yuga society goes to the point where we have less and less freedom, don't forget that Jesus in the Bible calls Satan the prince of this world, the lord of this world. The prince of this world in Kali Yuga is the lord of the darkness. Therefore, being here, it's like being in a prison and it's not about being given freedom. People like Milarepa are doing a prison break. Every spiritualist in Kali Yuga is a prison break hero because the society, the way it is, does not want to favor free people who do spirituality. That's not what the prince of this world likes. You have to be aware of the kind of world where you are and still, of course, stand up and follow your spiritual star. And the second expands on this one. It goes more specifically, the second of the ten causes of regret. Having obtained this pure and difficult to obtain, free and well-endowed human body, so again, the conditions are the same. It adds here the word pure, pure and difficult to obtain human body. This is a transfiguration. They say the human being is hard to obtain and pure. In a certain way, on a scale between animal and angel, the human being is above animality and closer to angels. Not completely there. That's why they would call it pure. It has something refined, because in this human body there resides a consciousness. Many people do not use enough their awareness, their consciousness, their free will. But, nevertheless, this consciousness exists. Even in a drunk, even in a vice-ridden person, there is a consciousness. And this shines through your skin. Seers can see that the human body has something extra 
to the body of the animals. We can watch a tiger, we can watch another, a gazelle, and say, what a beautiful animal, nature, or a dolphin, or something, and say, nature is beautiful. Seers think that the human body is more beautiful than the dolphins, and the gazelles, and the tigers, because it is shining from within, with enlightenment, with consciousness, potentially with enlightenment. That's why the author here felt like adding one more epithet. Having obtained this pure and difficult to obtain, free and well endowed, those conditions are very important, human body. It would be indeed a cause of regret to die as an irreligious man or woman, and overwhelmed by the worries of this world. That's the art of dying. When you will die, will you be able to stop thinking about your money and who feeds your parrot and who will have sex with your wife after you are dead? Why do you have the worries of this world? Why are you worried about the bridge and its condition? You did not build the physical world. It was here before you came. You are not the builder of this bridge. So what's your contribution, really, to the physical world? Thus, many people die overwhelmed by the worries of the world. People are mundane, attached. Their mind is moving too much in the worries of the world. We don't worry about the kingdom of heaven. As Ramakrishna says, and I paraphrase him, we cry because we are robbed of money, we cry because we are abandoned by our sexual and emotional partners, we cry because we are sacked from our jobs or dishonored or humiliated, but we don't cry because we don't know who created us and why we are in this world. We never cry because we don't know where we come from and where we go. We never cry because we don't know who we are and how we are supposed to live our lives. We cry because of a lot of things which are the worries of this world. The worries of this world, the mundane things, are so much more painful and highlighted for us compared to the spiritual principles. That is why Tibetan yogis say it would be Indeed, they enhance the previous one, a cause of regret to die as an irreligious man. It's Tibetan Buddhism. That's why they use the word, the translator, Ewan Zwens, who first translated this text in the early 20th century, he used the word irreligious. Irreligious, like for the Buddhists, but the yogis are not only Buddhists. They can be Hindu, Jain, Christian, Muslim, so many, and some of them Vedantin without any declared religion. And therefore, it is not about irreligious. It is about non-spiritual, a non-spiritualized human being. This sentence would be read, it would be indeed a cause of regret to die as a non-spiritual human being and overwhelmed by the worries of this world. Okay, maybe you didn't make it to nirvana because you didn't spend eight hours per day in meditation like Milarepa. But 
Why die overwhelmed by the worries of this world? How wise the Vedic tradition was. It said from 0 to 21, there is another standard which says from 0 to 25. It makes the chunks of 25 like the life of a human being is 100 years, four quarters. Others say it's more realistic to say the life is 84 years of age, because 84 is a sacred number. And then you divide it in four, which is four chunks of 21. 21 or 25, it's symbolic anyway. The Vedic tradition says from zero to 21, 25, you are a brahmachari. You study, you grow up, you form up your personality, you make yourself into a grown-up human being. From 21 to 42, you get married, you have children, you get involved in the things of the world, so you fulfill your need for kama, artha, all the things of the world. From 42, when your children get to get married in their own turn, then it's time to let go. Half of your life has already passed, and you are heading at breakneck speed into a wall that simply says another 42 years, and you will die as an irreligious person, overwhelmed by the worries of this world, because you are unable to uproot yourself from the soap opera. So when you are 42, the third stage of the life is start going on religious pilgrimage, give up the world, start being a spiritual person, travel, go and seek for teachers, go to holy places, start enriching. You, you've done your duty to the world, now start take care of your soul because death is coming. And then from 63 years of age, the last 21 or 25, whatever, it's sannyasa. Sannyasa is what is happening when you don't do it at that age and you take the vows of renunciation. To become a sadhu or a swami in India is called to take sannyasa diksha, is to take the sannyasa. And although some modern organizations are, have made a trifle out of it and they have made it like hilarious and superficial, I don't want to attack anybody specifically, sannyasa in the old days and for some people it's a very dead serious thing. It's exactly like you become a Buddhist monk or a Christian monk and nun. It means vows which are taken for life. It's a, a one-way ticket and it is like something to be taken very seriously. Everybody in the Vedic society, every man and woman that have made it to the age of 63 were automatically at 63 taking sannyasa. Like now you start being an old hag and an old man with half your teeth in the mouth, trembling limbs, and you are still thinking about the things of the world. Death is knocking at your door, and instead of you liberating yourself from the worries of this world and spiritualizing yourself, you are still going around full of desires, ambitions, frustrations, and this, it was like compulsory. Of course, it's not done in India today almost by anybody anymore. Because as they say in English, 
It's difficult to teach an old dog a new trick when your samskaras are there for sex and falafels and I don't know what. Then at the age of 60, 63 to say now I'm as good as dead, I'm taking the vows of renunciation, then it's very difficult because you have developed a lustful life, a life full of desires and weaknesses, and your samskaras are as big as the house, and it's very difficult to cut mercilessly everything and to say, I lived a good life, now enough is enough, it's time to give something to God, it's time to give something to my soul. But this tradition existed in the old days. Remember what I teach in the Art of Dying workshops. The principle in spirituality as announced by so many yogis is that the end, the end decides. If you lived an unspiritual life and the last five years of your life you lived them in frantic spirituality and you die in a state of meditation and spirituality, you are going to have a super outcome compared to the situation where you did yoga for 30 years, then you said, what the heck? You started drinking and fornicating and doing and getting in, enveloped by the worries of the world, and then you die irreligious and overwhelmed by the worries of the world. Your death is going to take you to a much nastier place. And people say, yeah, but when I was young, I did some yoga. Yes, but it is exactly like you went into an airport drunk and you, you boarded the wrong airplane. It doesn't matter that you've been a nice person 20 years ago. You still boarded the wrong airplane. When you board the wrong airplane, you go in the wrong place. It's as simple as that. It's not about merit. It's about the fruits of the immediate actions that you do. That is why here they refer more to the moment of death. They say having, it would be indeed a cause of regret to die an, as an irreligious man. Why? Because an irreligious man, when he dies, he thinks about sex, money. Who will feed his parrot? And when is he going next to have teeth and to be able to eat one more falafel? That's all he can think about when he dies. And with such thoughts, you go in a shitty place. You board the wrong plane. While, and, and overwhelmed by the worries of the world. The biggest problem is, of course, that you never know when the end of your life will come. Thus you can understand the motto of the Boy Scouts of America, which is taken from the Bible, of course, where Jesus gave this parable, where he says, be prepared. He gives a parable with a master who goes away and the servants are lazy, and the master comes back unexpectedly home. We can say that when you die, the master comes back home. And then were you prepared? There are many people who say, I will take, okay, you know, Swami has a point. I will take some, uh, my sannyasa when I will be 63 years old. But I have known people who died jogging at the age of 21. When you die while jogging at the age of 21 or 22 or whatever it is, you don't have the time to get to be 63 and take your sannyasa. 
That's why Jesus was correct. It would work for the majority, but still one has to be prepared at any time. That's why the Vedic society was wise, but it was probably working only for 75 or 80% of the members of the society because obviously some people got caught by their death in their 30s, in their 40s, in their 50s, and then they were still irreligious people overwhelmed by the worries of the world. So the Vedic society was better than nothing, although it was not the best, only if you are perfectionistic and you want to push it at the best, then you don't even allow any time. Then you simply tell to people, ever since you are 10 years old, ever since you are 15 years old, be prepared. The Lord might return any moment. You cannot say, I will be prepared after the age of 63. Thus, these are two different points of view, but the fact is that it is a sad regret to reach, to die as an unspiritualized human being and overwhelmed by the worries of the world. That is simply a bad death. And a bad death takes you in the wrong place. It's not what you want to have. Third of the causes of regret. This human life in the Kali Yuga the Tibetan texts clearly mention Kali Yuga, that now we are in Kali Yuga. Never forget that the Tibetan Buddhist tradition appeared around the 7th century with Padmasambhava, and for another three centuries it was very, very thin and very, very inexistent. And the Tibetan tradition, the Tibetan Buddhism and the Tibetan Yoga, they took off really hard only after the 10th, 11th century with the first major lineage, with Marpa, the translator, who went to India to learn from Naropa, and then Marpa transplanted it to Tibet. He had his disciple, the great Milarepa, who was the first great pillar of the Tibetan yoga and Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhist yoga, and then Gampopa and all the rest, which formed the backbone of the Kargyutpa lineages until today. What I am trying to say is, there was no Tibetan yoga too much in the 7th century. Tibetan yoga and Tibetan Buddhism are getting really strong around the 11th, 12th century. And therefore, for them this is Kali Yuga. Maybe the Vedic tradition with Krishna and Mahabharata and Ramayana... They talk to us about other yugas, other times. They have a much broader thing. The Tibetan Buddhist tradition is born in Kali Yuga and it lives in Kali Yuga and unfortunately it suffers much in Kali Yuga. I was this day listening to some video trying to ascertain this story with Jesus that allegedly lived in India, and they were quoting this Notovich manuscript in which Jesus allegedly traveled through India and he visited Lhasa. Those people didn't read their history because Lhasa in the year zero 
or the year 20 was nothing. At the best, there was a village of Mongolian shepherds in that place. Lhasa became Lhasa even in the time of Milarepa. Lhasa was barely anything. So why would have Jesus visited Lhasa? These are people who are phantasmagoric. For them, Lhasa is a big, big magic city, but they forgot the little detail that 2,000 years ago it was basically inexistent and definitely didn't have anything spiritual to it because there was not a Dalai Lama at that time. There was not a solid Buddhist tradition, Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and all the rest. So even this raises a question mark. People who come and write a text that claims that Jesus visited Lhasa, these are people who must have written this thing earliest or late or earliest in the 15th century or something. In the 15th century, it would have made some waves to say that even Jesus visited Lhasa. But in the time of Jesus, Jesus visiting Lhasa, then you should mention every other village which was visited by Jesus, because Lhasa was not more than that in those days. So, this human life in the Kali Yuga, the Tibetans are very clear about it, being so brief and uncertain. As I said, there are people who die at 21. You can say weren't there 12 centuries ago? Maybe. And weren't there such things happening in the Satya Yuga? Or it is presumed by the perfectionists of spirituality that in the older Yugas, people had more control over their karma, more control over their destiny, they could predict the moment of their death. They could make arrangements. They could prepare for a conscious death, for an art of dying. And that's why this sort of death, which comes unexpectedly and life is brief and uncertain, seems to be a typical mark of Kali Yuga. So anyway, they say, this human life in the Kali Yuga being so brief and uncertain, it would be a cause of regret indeed to spend it in worldly, limited, and unessential aims and pursuits. Worldly, limited, and unessential. Things are not black and white. Because there will be somebody who would say, I did my meditation... And now I just want to watch a video movie. I'm wasting my time in limited, unessential, and worldly pursuits. On the other hand, your own mind would say, buddy, you are not a robot. You are not a machine like Milarepa or something. If you try to push yourself to do 12 hours of yoga every day, in seven weeks, you'll start squealing like a dog and go mental, and you will break down and you will never do yoga again. You will obtain the opposite result by giving yourself an overdose of yoga, and then you might get frightened or there will be a psychological anti-reaction. Why? Simply because you are not Milarepa, you don't have enough aspiration, and to try to live in the shoes of Ramakrishna, when you are not Ramakrishna, just produces the opposite effect. Of course, you have to know who you are and what you can take. That's why, of course, people would say, 
I wish I had the heart and the mind of a Milarepa, but I don't. However, I can do some spiritual practice every day. The problem is that people take it as black and white. If I cannot do the whole day, day in this, you know, all the time, day in and day out, 24-7 yoga, then I'm just going to give up and go and get drunk and eat and drink and be merry because I can't do that. Very few people in this level of Kali Yuga with a mind like yours, grown up in the western cities, would be able to do what Milarepa did. That, but Shambhala knows this. The Buddhas of the past, present and future, the rulers of the karma, the angels, any spiritual entities that are out there helping, they know this. And it would be exactly like you are asking an ant to carry the same burden as an elephant and then blame it. Why, can, why can't you carry one ton on your back? Because elephants used to. Hey, we are not elephants anymore. We are midgets. We are ants. Ants can carry only as much as ants can carry. And it is common sense and known. And that is why you don't have to think perfectionistically. Like, of course, in the 20th or 21st century, people are bound that sometimes they do worldly limited or unessential aims. You will have a great yogi like Ramana Maharishi reading the newspaper, the Times of India or whatever he was reading. Do you really think that it was of any use to Ramana Maharishi or to the rest of the world that Ramana Maharishi wasted his time with a crappy piece of paper done by manipulating news agencies and usually telling lots of lies and manipulation. Like Ramana Maharishi could have saved himself half an hour every day but by not reading the Times of India. But Ramana Maharishi was not like Milarepa. He did meditate a lot. But then he was talking to the cows and the peacocks. He was taking some walks through the garden. He talked to people, which Milarepa didn't do because he lived alone. He was reading the Times of India. God knows what other funny or fun things he was doing because he was living in the 20th century, surrounded by people in an Indian habitat, in an Indian habitation, in an Indian city. And therefore, he had to adapt to that thing. So don't take it black and white here. It's a matter of principle. It says it would be a cause of regret indeed to spend it, to spend it 100% only, exclusively, in worldly, limited, and unessential aims and pursuits. Because that's the tragedy. There are people, and I've seen it even on people who have fallen off the path of spirituality, they wouldn't touch spirituality with a stick. They would do anything else but spirituality. Or they will do anything else but not spirituality. They would not touch it. And that is exactly where this statement goes. It says, life being brief and uncertain, like you don't know really when you are going to die and how much time you are going to be given, 
it would be a cause of regret to spend the little that you may have in 100% in worldly, limited, and unessential aims or pursuits. It's a harsh judgment because people who don't like to be judged, people that have a demonic ego and feel very anarchistic, independent, luciferic, and so on, they say, who are you to judge me that my aims and pursuits are unessential, limited, worldly? Like you can't really tell to people these things anymore because people will snap back at you like you are judging them. But the Tibetan yogis were not afraid to say it. They simply said there are aims and pursuits which are worldly, limited, and unessential. And while we admit that you can't do the essential ones 24-7, don't move from 24-7 to zero. Find your own midpoint. Find your own middle way. There must be a way in which you can do a Laya Yoga now and then to synchronize your brain hemispheres, to clean your brain waves, to use a mantra to eliminate the garbage from your astral, mental and etheric body, and to give yourself a bit of harmony. There must be a way. There must be a way to do some concentration of the mind, to sublime your sexual energy during the sexual activity, to try to get to some lucid dreaming, to do some karma yoga here and there. There must be a way. And this is where this statement points at. And again, it's not black and white as it sounds. The mind will simply say, yeah, right, these people were exclusive fanatics and you can't do what they did and you can't rise all the way to their expectations but you can rise to some of your expectations. What are your expectations? How big are your shoes when it comes to this issue? Four, one's own spirit being essentially of divine nature. The Tibetans don't call it spirit. That's the English language translation. They call it Dharmakaya or they call it the Buddha nature. One's own spirit being essentially of divine nature, it would be a cause of regret to let it be swallowed up in the morass of the world's illusions, which simply says you have been given a divine spirit. If you live an unworthy life, then you will go after death in some unworthy astral world, maybe in some inferno, maybe, and you are going to take your spirit with you. The spirit is like entrusted to you. The spirit is the consciousness, and the consciousness is the kingdom of heaven. It is the Buddha nature. It is the Atman which has been entrusted to you. It belongs to you, and it doesn't belong to you because it is the divine nature. It is a spark from the divine fire. It is a drop from the divine ocean. And with total generosity, God is breaking away a part of himself and puts it in your heart and says, take it, 
you can become God yourself. You can become infinite and eternal. You have the freedom, you have the consciousness. And what do you do? You take that divine spark and you drag it into hell. You drag it into the world of the hungry ghosts. You drag it into the world of animals living in animality and being even reborn as an animal or something. It's like you are the steward of something very precious. You are the guardian of something very precious. What do you do with your spirit? Your spirit is of divine nature, says Tibetan yoga. Why do you let it be swallowed in the morass of the illusion of the world? People say, so powerful I am. Of course it's not swallowed forever. Wake up. You cannot destroy something which is divine. And that divine thing has an infinite patience and it will wait for you to go 50,000 years in hell and then your divine nature is still there. But why do you treat it badly? Why treat the divine nature badly? It's like we have a guest of honor in our hearts. Why do we want to treat badly this guest of honor? There are many people who because of inertia, because of tamas, they would say, well, it's too tiresome. To it's the responsibility on my shoulders is too big. I wish I wouldn't have been given such a burden to carry. Tough luck. You are a human being and it's too late to complain about it. You should have stayed an animal. If you promoted to be a human being, you are given a task. And that task is you carry in your heart a part of the divine nature. And the divine does not expect you to drag it through the mud too much. And thus, here, indeed, we have a problem of the human consciousness. There are people who commit suicide, who give up because they say, I can't cope with the whole thing. I can't live life. It's too much. No, it isn't. If you are a human being, it means you are at the level where this is the appropriate te test for you. And you are just a prima donna. You are just high maintenance and claiming that it's too much for you. It's not too much. If it would be too much, you'd still be an amoeba. You would still be a cockroach. You would not be a human being. You have the consciousness developed enough to be a human being. It means you should stand up to your responsibility. The responsibility is that you have been entrusted with a fire. You are the guardian of the sacred fire. In your heart, there exists a sacred fire and you don't have to let it go off and you have to be nice to that sacred fire from your heart. This is the pain of being human. This is the pain of being conscious. That's the pain of being God. Rising and rising brings with it responsibility. Freedom brings responsibility. This is our share of the cosmic responsibility that we cannot afford to fall under entropia, under entropy, 
inertia and roll downhill, we are supposed to go uphill, we are supposed to go on the narrow road, which is uphill and arduous. It's not the easy path that we are supposed to take. Thus, this gives a very wonderful perspective that way we have a responsibility, we are carrying a divine gift. Five, the holy guru being the guide on the path to the divine, it would be a cause of regret to be separated from him before attaining the supreme liberation. The correct attitude to spiritual realization. Either you reach the spiritual realization, case in which you are free by definition, including of all your gurus, obligations, anything there, except if you have taken some special vows beyond that, but that's your responsibility to take them or not, or unless you have found the teachers which fit with you. Sometimes some people in spirituality, they say one life, one guru. Sometimes it is difficult. The Tibetans themselves, they had the tradition that one guru could send a disciple to another guru because of not fitting in terms of energy, personality, or the needs of the disciple or others. That is why a great guru like Abhinava Gupta confesses that he had 30 gurus in his life. Ramak uh, not Ramakrishna, Adi Shankaracharya also gives a list of 12 or 18 gurus, I don't remember exactly right now, which were his gurus which helped him perfect himself. That's why, again, this statement is very Manipuristic, but it is not a statement which is black and white. <coughs> the idea is, if you did not yet reach the spiritual realization, you should not be without a spiritual guide. Not the guru, a guru. Maybe for many people, they decided to do something, and then they discovered it was not really what they needed to do, and they changed their guru, or they change their practice. Given the fact that the human life is limited, it is a common sense truth that we cannot do this too much. It is exactly like somebody that wants to have a career and hopes first to be a scientific engineer, and after discovering that his heart is not with scientific engineering, he goes to become a medical doctor, and after practicing medicine for seven years, he discovers that his heart is not with medicine and he takes an MBA because he wants to practice management. You will not have time to become a great scientist engineer, a great doctor, or a great manager if you do that. Because basically you have split your life, your active professional life, in three periods of time and you need more time you need to dig deeper to become good at one thing, at something. Okay, it is possible to do one thing and then when you are 35 to discover, okay, this was not where my heart is, I'm changing. Changing too much 
is simply a sign of having too much vata in your mind. Your brain is vata dosha and you are in K. You should drink some olive oil every morning to stop that from happening. You should cultivate stability. You should do one hour of Paschimottanasana to stop that vata in your brain from getting you there. <laughs> what I'm saying here is, <coughs> of course, people do change spiritual teachers. People have two, three spiritual teachers learning from one some chiropractice, from another one some tantric tradition, from another one some kundalini yoga, this and that. Of course it is possible, but you always have to understand this synergically. There is one extreme which says, one life, one guru. There is another extreme which says, no guru, just going like a butterfly from flower to flower. Everybody is my guru. Everything is my guru. Sure, I've got 150 gurus in this life. Both of them are extremes, and extremism is not what leads to spirituality. Ramakrishna had a very, very good parable, which I hope you'll always remember. He said, going for your spiritual realization, it's like digging a well for water. If instead of digging 10 meters in one place, you dig 10 times 1 meter in 10 different places, you will, none of those 1 meter holes will reach to water. And then you will wonder if there is any water, and you have done the effort to dig 10 meters, only you didn't dig 10 meters in the same place. Like a laser beam, compounding your efforts so that they can lead to something. It's the same with spirituality. It's okay to change one, once. Maybe it's okay to change twice. If you start changing more than that, you are splitting your life in such small chunks that where is the realistic chance to compound and go deeper into your spiritual efforts? That is why it is very important for every spiritual practitioner at some point in their life to choose. You don't need to choose tonight. But if you plan to choose when you are 80, you are a fool as well. Between tonight and the age of 80, there must be some common sense measure that simply says, I always advise everybody, go around, check out the market, see what is available and possible, <clears throat> and then don't waste precious time because life is in unsafe, unguaranteed, whatever the words were here, that the life is brief and uncertain, and make a choice, start digging in one place. Give yourself a deadline. Simply ask the angels for inspiration and simply say, whatever I find until the day of 12 of August 2017, that's what is going to be. That's my deadline. Give yourself a deadline which is non-negotiable. Otherwise, you, if you are a person that gets bored easily with too much wind blowing in your brain, too much vata blowing in your brain, 
you are going to be changey and superficial like a butterfly and any time when you have some difficulty either your teacher either your guru has kicked your ass or you simply have been subjected by life itself to spiritual tests and your spiritual practice has become challenging or things are not flattering for your ego anymore then you of course tend to run away and to give up and thus this is a point of understanding as long as you do not have the hundred percent realization that you have reached spiritual emancipation you should not be separated from a path or a guru that simply says when you know you don't have a state of spiritual realization if you are into an impasse and you feel like oh my god it doesn't work anymore tibetan yoga says the solution is not to give up it is possible that in some situations you will shift from one spiritual path and the guru to another spiritual path and another guru but to be without spiritual path and guru when you know that you are not yet spiritually there that's a stupidity says Tibetan yoga and later it will be a cause of regret of course we have the idealistic perfectionistic thing where one has a guru one follows Jesus come follow me and of course then you would say don't let go of Jesus never ever because Jesus is so perfect really if you have a problem with Jesus it's all in your brain there is really no problem with Jesus you may have a problem with Rumi because you simply say this guy is too devotional and I'm an intellectual person I want an intellectual guru not a devotional guru fair enough that's your path you feel that that's not your path search research and find what is good for you but when somebody is of the level of perfection so of course we have this paradigm this archetype this perfect thing that there is the perfect guru don't let go of him hold on hold on hold on till the day where you reach emancipation but remember that Abhinava Gupta himself learned something from a guru then he felt it was not going beyond a certain level he went and sought for his other guru that guru gave him the methods which took him to the final emancipation however Abhinava Gupta once he decided that he wants to dig wells he never stopped from digging and he was always having a well master near him to teach him how to dig his wells thus you have to interpret it in the proper way because even the Tibetans don't mean it literally because even in Tibet disciples were studying with several gurus in a synergic way in a harmonious way 
but the Tibetans and the Indians have the concept of Shiksha Guru. Shiksha like in Shirshasana, it means the head. And Shiksha Guru is the, your main Guru, the Guru that made you reach enlightenment. And then you have Diksha Gurus. Diksha Gurus, Diksha means initiation. If a Guru gives you an initiation in Kali, and the mantra of Kali, it may be that that Guru is also your Shiksha Guru, with whom you'll stay till the end, or that's probably, it can be a Diksha Guru. But, constantly, you have to be under guidance. Simply going outside of the guidance before your time is a sign of arrogance, is a sign of vanity, it's a sign of Luciferianism. Oh, I don't need Ramakrishna to guide me. He's not really, but then who do you need? No, I don't need anybody. That's Luciferianism. That's an overdriven ego. And at the same time, therefore, remember that one should find, of course, the one that is or the paths which are appropriate. It would be a cause of regret to be separated from your spiritual teacher before attaining the supreme liberation. The, like, see, I like that always about the Tibetan standards. They are sharp. They are sharp, Ajna, Manipura, no beating around the bush, not going with politically correct ambiguities, not like they simply say what they want to say. You are a spiritual person, either you have lost your aspiration and you did not confess that to your guru, you can go to your guru and simply say, dear guru, my heart is dying. I'm losing my enthusiasm. I have no more aspiration, but I still surrender to you. Give me something. Give me a medicine for my aspiration. Help me not lose myself. Then the guru, if it's a real guru, would do something to step forward into it. But either you lost your aspiration and then you simply drop out in a very, as some people say, in a very British way, like you don't say a word and one day you disappear from the landscape. Nobody receives an explanation or anything. You are just gone, like some people do in many other circumstances. Or, or you have become so egocentric that you think you can solve your problems, your spiritual path alone, which if you would be a little, a little bit observant, you'd try to ask yourself how many people did really reach spiritual emancipation without a teacher in the 20th century. As far as my knowledge of spirituality goes, there probably have been three. And not completely independent, but about three. Three people in a century is way, 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 way less than the people that won the national lottery in any single country of the world. There are more than three people in a century that win the national lottery in any single country of this world. Therefore, the hope to take care of your own spiritual guidance because no guru is good enough for you is madness. 
it is arrogant foolishness because you stand a better chance to win the national lottery than to solve that without a guidance. And that is why here the Tibetans are very correct. You always need the spiritual guidance as long as you have spiritual aspiration. Don't let go of someone's hand. Hold your mommy or daddy by the hand until you cross the river. When you have crossed the river, then you don't need to hold any hand. Then you know the way. Then you have rafted across the ocean of samsara. We will stop tonight here. We have gone through the first five of the precepts for the disciples. In the next satsangs, I will teach some of those. So let us remain a little bit in silence after this satsang, absorbing the crisp, strong spirit of the Tibetan yogis, this very uncompromising way of looking upon spirituality. And that will do for tonight. Namaste to all of you. And I will see you in the next satsang.